So I don't know if you made any New Year resolutions this year. Um, I started off January with my family thinking and telling me that I was going through a midlife crisis, um, simply because I told them that we were going to eat less meat. Now, we are a family of meat eaters, and they, they didn't think that was a good idea, and that we were going to exercise more. And um, I even bought myself a new watch with some Christmas money I had been gifted to track my runs and to encourage me to run a wee bit more. Um, but I know myself and I know what will actually happen is that I'll start off running with great enthusiasm through January and then it might start to snow or get icy and then I'll stop for a while and then as the summer picks up and the nicer weather comes I'll start running a bit more and enjoying it and then as we descend towards the end of the year my run count will start to go down like this and my mince pieometer will start to go like this and at the end of the year, I'll get my Strava report and it'll look absolutely no different from last year's Strava report. So I know that under my own um, steam, transformation is very difficult. Last year, I was going to be fluent in French by the end of the year, but um, that hasn't happened. Quel dommage. Um, <laughs> but transformation with God is always possible. And today we're going to look at a pivotal transformation in the book of Acts, um, which without that transformation, we wouldn't have a large chunk of the New Testament. That transformation is of Saul when he um, met Jesus. And you might know him better as Paul, and he wrote lots of letters in the New Testament. Um, he changed the whole landscape of the church. He planted churches, encouraged churches, took the gospel to a large chunk of the known world at that point. Um, but he was a very different character to begin with. Um, and before we read Acts chapter 9, I just want to have a, a quick recap, because it's been a few weeks since we've been in Acts, of what's happened in Acts so far. So we started off with Acts, with Jesus going to heaven, and leaving his disciples with a commission to be his witnesses throughout the whole world, telling people the good news of Jesus. He also sent the Holy Spirit, which came in great power, and the, the number of believers grew in number um, vastly. There were times of great joy and great unity in the church, and there was also times of trial and persecution the most documented persecution we have so far is the, the killing of Stephen, who was stoned to death for his faith in Jesus. Um, and at that point, we meet Saul, who we're told is a young man. And um, the cloaks of those who were stoning Stephen were laid at the feet of Saul, which kind of tells us that he was a condoning the murder and sort of taking responsibility for it. Then we go into Acts 8, verse 3, I think it is, where it tells us that Saul is determined to destroy the church. And he goes from house to house, dragging out men and women and imprisoning them for their faith. Now, I'm sure at this point, if you'd told the believers that Saul was going to be God's chosen instrument to take the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles, they wouldn't have believed you or they would have struggled. But God is a God where transformation is always possible. So let's read Acts chapter 9, verse 1 to 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found there anyone who belonged to the way, whether men or women, 
he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named, a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tar from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. In this passage, we see two main characters, Saul and Ananias. One was a devout persecutor of Jesus, the other a devout follower of Jesus. One was intent on destroying the church, the other was intent on building it up. God meets with both of them powerfully. He transform, transforms one and uses the obedience of the other. Firstly, let's look at the transformation of Paul because it was quite a transformation. Can you picture the difference? Saul went from condoning murder to dragging people out of their homes and imprisoning them to breathing out murderous threats. He then went to the chief priests. He was on a mission to destroy the church. He asked for authority to go to Damascus and to imprison anyone who believed in Jesus. So that meant a 140-mile journey from Jerusalem to Damascus, which would be about a seven-day walk. You could just imagine him marching and breathing his murderous threats all the way to Damascus. And then on the way back, with all his prisoners that he's taken, marching all the way back. That was his intention. That's who Saul was. And then he met Jesus. Jesus, who he thought was some blaspheming menace who had rightly in his mind been killed, was still dead and was still somehow causing havoc. But that Jesus then met him. Not only did he meet him, 
but he blasted them to the ground. He caused them to be blind. And Saul saw, for, saw Jesus for who he was, risen and in the center of heavenly glory. That encounter with Jesus led to a complete transformation for Saul of his heart, of his mind, and of his soul. Let's look at some of the ways where he was transformed. So he went from breathing out murderous threats for anyone who believed in Jesus to writing in the letter to the Ephesians that James preached on last week, Ephesians 3, that says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Saul went from murderous threats to praying that people would know the depths of the love of Christ. To love Jesus is to love others and to want them to know Jesus. He went from being devoted to stamping out the believers to writing in the book of Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. His life became all about Jesus. He went from being physically and spiritually blinded to having his eyes opened, to being healed and to having his eyes opened to the truth. He went from being a Pharisee who detested the Gentiles, who wanted nothing to do with them, to being God's chosen instrument to take his name to the Gentiles. He went from someone who put up barriers to anyone who wasn't like him, to being someone to wrote, who wrote in the letter to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. That's quite a transformation. And that's what happens when we, we meet Jesus. He takes our life and he transforms it to be more like him. An encounter with Jesus leads us to recognizing that Jesus is Lord. An encounter with Jesus leads to us surrendering our life to him. An encounter with Jesus leads us to be changed, to be more like him. I love the way Jesus enters the scene here. Sometimes we talk about, we think we hear something from God, or God's gently nudging us to do something. But there's absolutely nothing subtle here. Jesus comes, and Saul is on the ground. But then he comes with what to me sounds like quite a personal touch. He says Saul's name twice. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I can almost imagine him, I know it doesn't say this in the text, but I can almost imagine him taking Saul's face in his hands, being like, Saul, Saul, why are you doing this? And to me, that, that implies that Jesus is showing love. He's showing that he knows Saul. He's showing him that he knows what's best and that he should really listen up. And I don't know about you, but if somebody was to say my name twice like that, it would really make me think and really make me um, listen up to what they're saying. I wonder if something, if Jesus is saying your name twice to something this morning. He tells Saul that he has to get up and go into the city and then he'll be told what to do. He's basically saying, Okay, Saul, you've had your time, but now I'm in the driving seat. I wonder, is there something in your life where God's saying to you, I need to be in the driving seat on this?
because God is still in the business of transforming lives. We see Saul's life transformed here when he meets Jesus and surrenders his life to him. But he's asking us to surrender our lives daily to him. There's always some area of our life that we can be working on along with God where he's transforming us to be more and more like him. I don't know if you've seen the TV series, The Chosen. Um, it's, it's a program about Jesus and his disciples. And I know some of you are now switching off saying these things are always, always cringy and always done badly. But I think The Chosen's done really well. And there's this bit in the first episode where we haven't met Jesus yet. And it's been largely about Mary Magdalene and um, her awful life before she meets Jesus. And she's just about to drown her sorrows in a cup of alcohol. And as she goes to reach for the cup, Jesus comes in and he puts his hand over hers. And he just says to her, that's not for you. And I just wonder, is there an area of your life where Jesus is just saying to you this morning, that's not for you. Allow me in the driving seat on this. Because God is always in the business of transforming our lives. Another encouragement we can take from Saul's transformation is that we are never too far from God. We are never too broken, too sinful, too far away that he can't reach us and transform us. Saul was a murderer. So was David. So was Moses. And God used them. God wants to use us. You're never too far away from him that he can't come and transform you. And secondly, Nobody else is ever too far away from Jesus that they can't be transformed. I wonder if there's someone that you've given up praying for. I wonder if there's someone who you think, they'll never come to know Jesus. Well, that's not true because Jesus can always transform us. So I wonder, do you recognise Jesus as Lord? Have you had that encounter with him? Are you allowing him to encounter you daily and transform your life? Is there something that you need to surrender to him? An encounter with Jesus also leads us to be part of a family of believers. And the first believer that Saul encountered was Ananias. I love this encounter. Because it shows us that obedience to God matters. Ananias is only mentioned here in the Bible and then later on in Acts when Saul is retelling the story. He's a bit of a hidden hero. All we know about him is that he is a Jew, that he is a devout Jew, it tells us later on in Acts, um, and that he was greatly respected by those living in Damascus. The absolute opposite of Saul, really. It says in verse 10, The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. I just love that. He instantly knows God's voice and responds. He's not like Samuel in the Old Testament, who God had to call several times. And each time Samuel got up and went to the priest because he thought it was the priest calling him. He didn't recognize the voice of God. But here we see that Ananias knows God and he knows his voice. And that's a we challenge to you today. Do you know God's voice? Do you spend time listening to him? Do you ask him to speak to you? And when he does, are you obedient because God wants to use us the same way that he used Ananias. He can speak to us and use us. And what we see in this part of the chapter is just a beautiful orchestration of God at work 
Verse 11 tells us that Saul is praying. And in response, God gives him a vision of a man named Ananias who's coming to heal him. God then goes to Ananias and says to him, I've given Paul, or Saul, a vision of a man called Ananias who's coming to heal him. Ananias was up, you know, there, there was no plan B here. Saul's expecting a man called Ananias, so he better be obedient. <coughs> Thankfully, Ananias is obedient and is therefore the answer to Saul's prayer. Our obedience matters, and it's all part of God's plan, and you could be the answer to someone else's prayer today. However, can you imagine the thoughts going through Ananias' mind? It tells us in verses 13 and 14 that Ananias knows why Saul of Tarsus is coming. He knows that he's coming armed with authority from the chief priests. He knows what he's done in Jerusalem. Perhaps Ananias was even one of the people who was scattered from Jerusalem already suffering persecution. He knows that his number's up if Saul comes to him. So he goes to God and he gives him his concerns. And God doesn't give him a get out. God says, I've told him there's a man called Ananias. And he says to him that Saul is going to be his chosen instrument. And he says to the Gentiles, to the kings and to the people of Israel. That in itself might have been a confusing thought for Ananias because these three groups did not mix. And Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee, so like the highest order of Jews. Certainly, he might not have even spoken to some Jews, never mind Gentiles who were non-Jews and their kings. These three groups didn't mix. And Ananias, uh, God saying to Ananias, Saul is going to be my witness to all these people. So perhaps armed with... Um, knowledge from the Old Testament that tells us that God cannot lie. Ananias goes trusting God, because without trusting God, he's walking into the mouth of a lion. He goes trusting God to the house that Saul is staying in. He probably had no idea what the eternal significance of his obedience was. And often we don't have any idea what the eternal significance of our obedience to God is. But we know obedience matters to God. There was one time when um, I had just had a baby and it was my first baby and someone had given me a big bag of baby clothes and baby paraphernalia. There was a baby carrier and lots of stuff and um, she didn't want any money for it and it wouldn't have been appropriate for me to give her money for various reasons. Um, and I had been thinking of a way to bless this lady. Um, and there was one day I was out walking with my lovely new pram. And I was marching along. I'd been for a lovely big walk and I was on my way home. And God just said to me, walk up that lane. And I just ignored God because I thought, well, I don't know where that lane goes. I've never been up it before. And it's not on my way home. So I kept walking. And then God just said to me again, turn around and walk up that lane. So I thought, oh, okay, I better be obedient here. And I turned around. I, had, uh, I have a husband who's an engineer, so the pram had been carefully planned and it had a th uh, the front wheel was a 360 revolving wheel. So I did a smooth U-turn, went back and went up this lane. As I was walking up, I met the lady who had given me all the baby clothes and the baby things. And we got chatting and she said to me, oh, I love your pram. 
mine is a bit broken and I looked at her stroller with her toddler in it and the wheel was a bit wonky and it did look like it would be quite difficult to push and she said I do need a new one but I can't afford it just now and I knew at that point what in a way that I could bless her so I went to mother care and I got her vouchers um, and I went to her the next day and I, I gave her the vouchers and I also had the opportunity to share the gospel with her now, she didn't accept the gospel, she didn't accept Jesus at that point. Maybe she has now, I don't know. I'll keep praying for her. But I knew that my obedience mattered to God. He was answering my prayer of a way I could bless her. But he was also answering a prayer that I didn't know, that I could trust Jesus. I could trust the voice of God, and I knew to be obedient in that. I wonder what God is asking you to be obedient in today. Could you be the hidden hero and be the answer to someone's prayer. Our obedience matters, but another thing that matters is family. When Ananias arrives at the house of God, uh, at the house of uh, Saul, a beautiful thing happens. He goes and he puts his hands on Saul and he says, "Brother Saul, brother Saul." At the start of the chapter, these guys were enemies. Saul was coming to Damascus to drag Ananias 140 miles back to Jerusalem to be punished. But Saul's encounter with Jesus had changed him. And it had transformed him so that they were no longer enemies, but now they were brothers. And Ananias had already grasped what Saul would later write in the book of Romans. Romans 8 verse 1 says that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The sins of Saul had been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. His slate had been wiped clean, meaning that his, he had received forgiveness. He'd been brought into the family of God so that he and Ananias were no longer enemies, but they were brothers. When we meet Jesus, it leads to forgiveness, which leads to love for others. It means to making enemies, brothers and sisters, Barriers are broken down. Forgiveness happens. And we become family. It's one of the most beautiful things. When I was a student, um, we lived in a big house on Kelsey Seat Road and there were six of us. And we had loads of fun together. Um, we laughed together. We cried together. We learned together. We just chilled out together. We would each take it in turns to cook dinner. Um, so you would cook for the six of us and you would when the meal was ready you'd shout dinner time and everybody would come out of their rooms and we had a big um, round table at the end of the kitchen where we would share a meal together and we would sit down as a family and um, we also had a jigsaw that was quite often on the go I know Yoni likes doing a jigsaw um, and it wouldn't often get done during, during normal term time and then when exams came everybody would pile around the jigsaw instead of studying <laughs> Anyway, we just had, we had a lovely time together and there was one day I was out with my flatmate um, Karen and she introduced me to this guy she knew and he said, oh, are you guys flatmates? And Karen said, we're not flatmates, we're family, which then became the cheesiest phrase that we still repeat to this day. But it was true, we did act like family. We had no blood relations there, but... As I say, we laughed together, we cried together, we did fight. We had fights over silly things like, should you put a jumper on before you put the heating on? Should you serve somebody a salad in the middle of winter? That was a good argument. 
Um, but we had this baseline level of security in our love for one another that we could get past these things and forgive each other and still be family. By Ananias calling Saul brother, he was showing him family. He showed him forgiveness. He showed him acceptance. He healed him and set him off on the right foot by baptizing him. And he gave him somewhere to stay. Ananias pointed Saul to Jesus. It's a challenge for us as a church family, isn't it? Sometimes we can be good at letting God do the forgiving and then we neglect to forgive people. Are we always accepting of people who are different to us? Are we helping people on their journey and pointing them towards Jesus? Are we treating people like family? I wonder who you need to be family to today. Not just churchmates, but family. Being part of a church family is so necessary for us to grow in our faith, to be pointed to Jesus, to learn with, to be rebuked at, at times, to laugh with, cry with, mourn with, pray with. God doesn't want us to do it on his own. He's set us in a community of believers for a reason. It's important and it's what Jesus modelled. In the Gospels, we read about Jesus being on his own at times to spend time with his father. But the rest of the time we see him was surrounded by people. Sorry for all you introverts out there. But we see Jesus modelling spending time with Peter, James and John, his three closest friends. And I wonder, do you have a group of friends, who you're, a small group of friends, who you're real with, who you pray with, who you learn with, who you can go and say, this is what's really going on in my life? I wonder if you need to put that in place in your life today. Jesus also spent time with the 12 disciples who they did life together. That could be like a connect group. Are you part of a connect group where you're part of a bigger group of people where you do life together, you support one another, you encourage each other, you point each other to Jesus. And then we also read in Luke's gospel about Jesus sending out the 72, which is about the size of an average UK church. So Jesus modelled being part of a small group of people. He modelled being part of a group of 12 and he modelled being part of a group of 72. Do you have these three things in your life that you can be family in each area. Because being in a family is what God has set us in. It's where he wants us to learn. It's where he wants us to grow. It's where he wants us to encourage one another. And it's what he modelled. I wonder if you're watching online and you've been watching for some time and you think, yeah, that's okay. But we have an online community where you can get involved deeper into church. You can get involved with a connect group. You can um, pray with people one-on-one -on -one or, or in a smaller group. I wonder if you need to click on the connect button today and just say, um, yeah, I want to be part of that church family. Or I wonder if you've been wandering for a while and you think, oh, I don't really need to go to church or, you know, I can dip in and out. I just want to encourage you to regularly go to church or regularly watch online. Be part of a family of believers. Let's be quick to love, quick to forgive each other, quick to help and to point each other to Jesus. Don't just be churchmates, but be family. So I wonder 
if there are people in your life that you need to treat as family that you know you're not treating as family. Or wonder if you need to join a family and be part of a group of believers. So just to sum things up a wee bit, Saul was transformed and transformation with Saul is always possible. What is he asking you to surrender today that he can transform? Our obedience to God matters. Do you know God's voice and do you respond to it? What's he asking you to be obedient in today? And are you part of a family of believers? Don't just be churchmates, be family. So that's just a few things that we have learned from Acts chapter 9 this morning. I wonder if when I've been speaking, you've thought, well, I've never had that transformation. I've never known Jesus to come and transform me. You might not have that blinding moment on the road to Damascus, but Jesus is still calling you to be a follower. And you can do that today. So I'm just going to say a short prayer. And if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you can echo that prayer in your heart. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you died for me. I thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross and to um, be raised again to life so that I can have a relationship with you, that I can have my sins forgiven, I can have my slate wiped clean like Saul did. I'm sorry that I haven't lived my life with you and for you till now, and I want that to change. Please come and live in my heart and transform me to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.